It was like an inch at the top. Gertie is 93 years old. There's a mask that I have for Halloween that's the Cyclops. Welcome to the Appleseed Studio. I'm Sam Payne, your host. And the Appleseed is an hour that uses the power of great stories to help you make sense of the world and communicate with the people who are important to you. I can't tell you how excited I am to bring you some great stories today. A performance from Bill Harley, recorded live in the Appleseed Studio before our terrific studio audience, and a whole lot more. And now, to introduce you to what we're going to hear in the Appleseed Studio today. This may sound unusual, but we've been thinking a little bit about what people call the generation gap. You've heard that term before, right? It's the idea that there's a difference between the thoughts and feelings and experiences and ideas of one generation and the thoughts and feelings and experiences and ideas of the generation before them or the generation after them. I mean, you might like your folks, for example, but you may think differently than they do. You might like different music than they do or different movies and interactions between folks of different generations. Well, that's what we've been thinking about. And as we thought about it together, we all had essentially the same experience. Other than our parents and maybe our grandparents, the first people from another generation that we got to know really well were our elementary school teachers. For a lot of us, that was our first real experiment with trying to get along with someone from a different generation outside our own families. And there were ups and downs in those student-teacher relationships. Maybe it was the same for you. You can probably think of teachers you loved, teachers who meant a lot to you, teachers who, when you think of them, filled you with great memories. And then there are other teachers, teachers who are hard to deal with, too strict or whatever. So today, we're thinking about generations and we're thinking about interactions between students and teachers. And as we said, we'll hear from the Grammy-winning storyteller and musician Bill Harley, who remembers pretty well what it was like to be a kid. 50 years old! <laughs> Woo! I'd never known anybody that was 50 years old before. And we'll hear a conversation between a fourth-grade teacher and one of his students, now all grown up, about some of the meaningful experiences they had in the classroom together, experiences that had to do with learning poetry. It's a story that will begin with a famous poem called Invictus, written in 1875 by William Ernest Henley. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's a cool poem, and it's a cool story. You won't want to miss it a little later on in the hour. And I'll share an elementary school memory of my own in today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. But first, Bill Harley. Bill lives in Massachusetts, where he cooks up stories and songs for kids and their grown-ups all over the country. And in a few minutes, we're going to hear a story about a classroom full of kids and a teacher having a birthday. But first, we thought we'd introduce you to Bill with a song. We'll let him tell you about it. It was recorded live right here in the Appleseed Studio. Here's Bill. Hi, everybody. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. It's nice to be here with Sam uh, on the Appleseed. Um, I do remember fondly that first talk we had. Uh, it was years ago. It's, it's just amazing. We just haven't changed at all. Uh, so uh, I'm going to start off with a. Uh, I'm going to start off with a song that um, it's it's a pretty new song, and it's when you work with kids um, and people who work with kids, um, they're aware that. Um, Sometimes uh, kids aren't taken seriously and their lives aren't taken seriously. And really, um, the things that happen to kids are really important. And I, a lot of times, those people who work with kids, their work is not taken seriously either. Um, and it's just one of the things that you've got to find your own purpose uh, and, and know that, that, that it has value. And the people, the good people know that. Um, I was at a festival uh, a year or so ago, and they had asked me, they wanted to have a, a 
children's tent, a children's stage, and I said I would come, and I got there, and as often happens with children's things, it was often a little corner, and the sound system wasn't very good, and they hadn't really told people anything about it, so I was kind of off there in my corner, just, I, just about what I expected, and I, I sat uh, that night and watched on the maid stage, there were 10,000 people screaming and chanting, and I thought that my work is a little work. Uh, it, that it's a little work. And there, um, while people were chanting and all singing, the 10,000 people, I wrote uh, the, the verse, the chorus to this song. Um, and so I have a little part for you out there. Little things make big things, big things make a difference. So I know that little things do too. So I take care of little things because they make a difference. I just do what I can do. Here's a drop of rain fall into the ground drops turn to a trickle then a stream stream turns to a river flows into an ocean you never know what just might be cause little things make big things big things make a difference so I know that little things do too So I take care of little things Because they make a difference I just do what I can do and Here's your part, it goes like this Na 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 Far off in the sky a star is being born a flower opens right beside your door Nothing comes from nothing Everything starts somewhere No one knows for sure just what's in store One thing that I want you to know I will stand beside you while you grow While you grow Na 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 One voice is one voice One more than no voice One voice more than no voice at all But one voice and one voice Is one more than one voice Every big thing out there started small So little things make big things Big things make a difference So I know that little things do too I take care of little things Because they make a difference I just do what I can I just do what I can I just do what I can do And one more time Na 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 Nice singing Nice to be here Bill Harley, 
with our studio audience as his backup singers. Maybe you sang along a bit, too. That song brings back, for me, not so much a memory, but a feeling that I had all the time I was a kid. The feeling that the things I was working on and thinking about, the feelings I had about my parents and about my friends and about the world around me and about God, that they really didn't count somehow just because I was a kid. I mean, someday maybe when I grew up, I'd grow into thoughts and feelings and work that would matter, that would count. And that's what I thought. That's how I felt. I was wrong, of course. The feelings I had and the stuff I was working on and the relationships I was developing and the thoughts I had about the world and about God, they all mattered a lot. They were the little things that Bill Harley sings about, the little things that make a difference. Over time, I came to realize that part of figuring out how to change and grow into what I'd like to be later on has to do with taking seriously the things I'm thinking and feeling now. Those little things matter. And that song by Bill Harley is just an introduction. We want to bring you a story now about some kids and their teacher, Mrs. Nottingham. It's a story that will fill you with memories and thoughts of your own time in elementary school. It's sure to. And it'll give you some things to think about, too. Notice, for example, how the world of the kids in the story is different from the world of the grown-ups in the story. That's the source of some of the laughs in this performance and also some of the tenderness as we come to learn that even people who are pretty far apart can have some pretty meaningful times together. Bill is waiting in the Appleseed Performance Studio along with our terrific studio audience. Let's join them. Hey, guys. Thank you so much. Really, thank you. You know, I spend a lot of time with kids and, uh, and, their, and the people around them, and uh, even when I was a kid, I noticed that uh, kids were different from adults. <laughs> And uh, one of the ways I noticed it, I noticed this almost immediately, and I'm, I'm still very aware of it, is that, like, kids are really into age, and adults really aren't. <laughs> like, kids, the first thing a kid will ask is, how old are you? Right? That's, like, how old are you? And you're like, you're seven. I'm like, I'm seven and a half. <laughs> you never hear an adult say, I'm 41 and a half. They never do that, right? And I saw that when I was a kid, because like you couldn't say, you know, the people would come over to your house, you know, an adult, and you go, how old are you? Shh, don't ask that. Why not? Don't ask, it's not nice. And because of that, when you're a kid, you don't know what age looks like, right? You know, some are 24, and some are 38, and some are 94, but you don't know what it looks like. And I didn't until I got in third grade, and I had Mrs. Nottingham. Now, Ms. Nottingham, she was from the old school. She, was, she went to a normal college, and she was a normal teacher, and she was, she was tough. She wore a black wool suit on the day in June, and she didn't break a sweat. And she was there to teach us a lot of stuff, but mostly she was there to teach us, it's a cold, cruel world, boys and girls, and you just better learn that right now. It'll be a lot easier if you learn it. For instance, like you'd be trying to learn something, but if you didn't learn it, she'd say, well, that will teach you a lesson. You know, for instance, like we're, in third grade, we learn multiplication. Everybody learns multiplication. It must be like genetically encoded in third grade, you know, multiplication. And so you're figuring it out, and you can't figure it out, and you got to go ask for help. And you're really not supposed to bother a teacher and ask for help because they're always busy doing something. Like she's up there with her grade book, you know. You'd walk up there, you go, Ms. Nottingham, and back then we had these grade books, and she would, it's all on computers now, but she'd mark it. It was a grade book, and she would cover it over so you couldn't see. She'd say, yes. He'd say, I, I, I can't do this. And she'd snap her pen down. She'd look over those, hard, those half glasses. She'd say, well, I'll tell you what, Mr. Harley. No one, and I mean no one, ever got anywhere without a little hard work. Now you get back to try it again. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks, Ed. All right, because you were learning multiplication, but you were really learning it's a cold, cruel world. The most terrifying thing about Ms. Nottingham was she had something that everybody in my class called the claw. And the claw looked like her hand <laughs> until it went into action. <laughs> and then it was swift and dangerous. 
You know, you'd be over in the corner of the room kind of testing the limits of acceptability on something, thinking you were saved because she was attending somebody else when all of a sudden, whap, it'd be around your neck. Ah! And she just squeezed tighter and tighter, ah! until she just pinched her head off, fall there in the classroom. She had to go on the intercom and have the custodian come down and put it back on with duct tape. <laughs> duct tape and wood chips, that's all you really need in life. So she, we used to run around the playground, I'm the claw, I'm the claw. <laughs> the weird thing about Ms. Nottingham, and a lot of ad adults too, was that she would move. And I don't mean she moved from one place to another physically, but that she would do all those things and then she would do something that was nice, and that was confusing. Kids don't really mind if you're strict, as long as you just stay in one place, but they want to know what to expect. Because kids think that the world is static. All I do is have to figure out this amount of information, and then I will be a grown-up. And well, actually, you're a grown-up when you realize everything is just moving all the time. <laughs> So, but then Ms. Nottingham would do stuff that didn't make sense. Like she'd do all this, she had the claw and she'd teach it's a cold, cruel world. But every day after recess, she'd say, put your heads on your desks. <laughs> put her head in it. She said, you sit there. And she had a big red rocking chair. It was the only time she sat in it. And she would read us books. And I still remember the book. She read us Charlotte's Web. She read us the boxcar children. The boxcar children. Like all great children's literature begins with getting rid of the parents. <laughs> Think about it. You got to get rid of the parents. The parents are done. And she read us Mrs. Piggle Wiggle, and we love Mrs. Piggle Wiggle. It was this reverse psychology, you know? Make a big message you want, and you'll grow to hate it. Things like that. But it was weird coming from Mrs. Nottingham, this person who told us that it was a cold, cruel world. When she would read us these books that I still remember today, you know? When, when, when Charlotte died, I still remember that, you know? Now, the other thing that was weird about Mrs. Nottingham to me was she lived on my street, which teachers are just not supposed to do. It's weird when you see a teacher where they don't belong, right? I'd see her out there in the garden weeding in her, in her bathing suit, and it was just like something you should not. Once you see Mrs. Nottingham weeding, you can't unsee it. It's weird, you see them in a supermarket, you know, a kid goes, uh, the teacher's in the supermarket shopping, the kid comes around the aisle and goes, hey, I know someone who looks like you. I'm your teacher. What are you doing here? I'm buying food. You eat? The whole world shakes when they see you go into the restroom. What's she doing in there? Couldn't be what I do. So I knew she was a real person because she lived on my street. And several times that year, after the bus riders left and the walkers had left, she gave me a ride home. And I would get to stay and help clean up the room, which for some reason was exciting for me. As soon as I walked into the house, it was not long, no longer exciting. But, and I remember that was one, one day I was doing that, and we had had art class, and she taught art. Back then, she was the music teacher and the art teacher. She did everything. And I had these big... Uh, black paintbrushes, and there was a rubber band on each end, and we were putting, I had to put them back in the right place in the cubby hole in the cloakroom. Now, in the classroom, the cloakroom was not a real room itself. It was just a standing wall between it and the rest of the class, and where you put your coats, and there were supplies back there. And I was back in there putting away, and I heard someone come in to the uh, classroom, and I heard the voice, and it was Miss Beeman. It was a teacher that lived next door. And I heard her say, Well, Gwen, it was Mrs. Nottingham's first name. I knew that. Well, Gwen, you're coming up on 50, huh? And I thought, coming up on 50, what does that mean? <laughs> she said, oh, I suppose so, but I don't like to think about it. It happened so fast. And Ms. Beam said, now, when is your birthday? Is it next Tuesday? And she said, yes, it is, but don't you tell a soul. I don't have room in my class for silly business like parties. We're here to learn. And I thought, 50 years old! <laughs> Woo! I've never known anybody that was 50 years old before. <laughs> Seemed to me Moses was about that old when he died. <laughs> and part of me thought, wait till everybody hears. But then this little voice said, Bill, if she finds out you know, she'll pinch your head off. I said, right. I got to keep quiet. I can't tell anybody. So then Mrs. Beeman left, and I didn't know what to do. I just stayed back in there, right? And finally, Ms. Ms. Nottingham says, Bill, where are you? Where, where are you? 
I said, I'm here. I came back. She said, what were you doing? I said, not doing anything or listening or anything. <laughs> and she said, let's go. And we walked down the hallway and we across the drive. We got into our car and it's going to date me too. But she'd had it for a number of years. It was a 1959 Nash Rambler with bench seats. And she's driving home like this, you know, and I'm sitting next to her, no seatbelt sitting in the front seat. And every time, man, I got, I could, I got a good look at her, you know, I was like, just staring at her. You couldn't blame me for staring because I'd never seen 50 before. And now I had it, you know, grain hair pulled back in a bun with chopsticks through it. Bright red lipstick costume jewelry bracelets on each arm so she she kind of waggled them all the time you know that's what she looked like that's what 50 looks like i said now this is what all 50 year olds look like now i know what 50 is and it was a great secret and i had to keep it and i did a pretty good job until the next day in the lunchroom <laughs> for there are no secrets in the elementary school lunchroom i sit next to my best friend tommy said i said tommy he said, what? I said, guess what? He said, what? I said, I can't tell you. <laughs> it's a secret. I said, what is it? I said, I can't tell you. He said, you got to. I'm your best friend. I can't. I can't. You got to. I can't. You got to. I can't. You know what? I said, what? He said, you don't know it. I said, what? You don't know your secret. He said, yes, I do. He said, no, you don't. I said, yes, I do. He said, no, you don't. If you can say it, you don't know. You can say it, you know it. If you don't say it, you don't know it. You're not saying you don't know it. I said, uh-huh. He said, uh-huh. Uh-uh, uh-huh. I said, Mrs. Nottingham's going to be 50 years old on Tuesday. He said, whoa. Mike Newcomb across the table said, that's how old Moses was when he died. <laughs> Sally Williams said, wait till everybody hears. I said, no. Shh. No, be quiet. No. Don't tell anybody. My life depends on it. Cross your heart. Hope to die. Poke a needle in your eye. <laughs> I said, all right. Okay, okay, okay. Whatever. Cretans, creeps, turncoats, they betrayed me. <laughs> the next day I knew I was in trouble because everybody in the classroom was talking to. And, and before, you know, during the morning work, and Amy Carpenter, who was kind of the self-appointed class organizer, came up and said, I think Ms. Nottingham ought to have a birthday party. And I said, no, that's a bad idea. She said, why not? I said, because Ms. Nottingham hates birthdays. She said, why? I said, I don't know. Something happened to her. <laughs> she said, I think that's ridiculous. I know, I tried to stop it, but they organized the biggest birthday party Delaware Trails Elementary School had ever seen. Amy got the kids in the class to make 50 birthday cards. And, and Sally Williams said she's going to get her mom to make a cake and they're going to put 50 candles in it. <laughs> the two boxes of candles. In, and, and Amy had friends over at her house and they got those old stencils and the magic markers that you get a high on and the shelf paper. And they made this banner they were going to hang over the front chalkboard and said, Mrs. Nottingham is 50 years old today. And I kept saying, stop it. She hates birthdays. And they said, don't be silly. Everybody loves birthdays. And I said, not Mrs. Nottingham. Something happened to her. <laughs> what? I don't know. Maybe she threw up on her birthday. I don't know. So finally, Tuesday rolled around. And I woke up in the morning. And I remembered what day it was. <laughs> I had stomach aches all the time before I went to school. And I decided I had a stomach ache. I said, Ooh. Mom, Mom. She came and looked, she said, get up. <laughs> Mom, I'm sick. Get up. Mom, if you're sick, you can call me from the nurse's office. I don't like the nurse. I know that. Get up. <laughs> My mom was a writer. She wanted me out the door so she could work. So I walked down the street. I got on a bus. Three stops later, Sally Williams came running down the aisle, sat next to me. She said, I got a cake and cookies, too. What do you have? I said, nothing, because Mrs. Nottingham hates birthdays. She said, don't be stupid. Everybody loves birthdays. I said, not Mrs. Nottingham. Something happened to her. We got into school, man. It was like the day before vacation. You know, we were all wired. And Mrs. Nottingham is, what is wrong with you children? <laughs> and Amy Carpenter, she was not afraid of talking to grown-ups. 
So she went and talked down to the secretary, talked to the secretary. So that that afternoon at 2.15, this announcement came over the PA system. (laughs) Ms. Nottingham, can you please come down to the office? (laughs) We got something we want you to say. And Mrs. Nottingham always talked to the intercom like it was a real person. Yes. 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 Yes, you're looking nice too. I'll be right down. And then she turns to us like it was a private conversation. I have something I have to sign in the office. Oh. I'll be right back. Nobody move. No one breathe. Amy, you come sit here at my desk and take down the name of anyone that breathes. She walked across the room. She stopped at the door. She said, Children, not a sound. And you know I mean it. Out the door, down the hallway, her high heels echoing like gunshots, fading off in the distance. Soon as we heard them disappear, and he said, let's get ready. She turned off the light. Everybody opened up the desk. They took out the cards. Silent took out the cake. She brought out, the, she brought matches, matches. She brought matches into school. We're all going, we know how to light matches. We've lit matches before and we're fighting. And, and they're hanging a banner over the chalkboard and Teddy Dunn and three or four other guys and make her paper, and paper gliders and standing on the desk and throwing them because it seems like the right thing to do, right? Wow. And all of a sudden somebody says, everybody be quiet. She's coming back. Shh, be quiet. Everybody be quiet. Shh, be quiet. Why is it so noisy in here? It's quiet. Shh, shh. And finally, we settle down. And those footsteps stopped right outside the door. She stepped in. And then we flipped on the switch. We said, happy birthday. You're 50. And then someone got an idea. They started to count. One, two, three, four. We all joined in. We were third graders. That was nothing. Five, six, seven. It was a long way to 50. Nine, 10, 11, 12. About 13 or 14 kids start dropping out. They're 15, 16, 17. There's like eight boys going 19, 20. 21, finally there's three kids going 22, 23, one boy says 24, 25. And that was as far as anybody got. Because when you looked at Miss Nottingham, you realized a serious mistake had been made. She did not seem happy about it. She glared at the class. She stalked across the front of the room we were looking up over her head. She said, Oh, for pity's sake, who told you this? <laughs> no, no, don't. For one brief and shining moment, they all held out. And they said, Bill did! <laughs> It's his fault. You can have him. We don't care about him anymore. And she said, Bill, you come up here right now. I said, I have to go to the nurse's office. She said, you come up here right now. And I walked up and she got bigger and bigger and bigger. Never forget how big five foot two is to a third grader. And I looked up at her and she looked down at me and I saw it. The claw. I felt it wrap around my neck. It was tighter and tighter. I think it's too young. Oh, too young. And all of a sudden, I realized it wasn't her hand. It was tight. It was just my neck. I looked up at her. And she was looking out at the class. The class was holding the cards. And Sally Williams was holding the cake that was only half lit because... We've been fighting over the matches, and Teddy Dunn was standing on the desk with a glider in each hand, realizing it was not a good place to be, but maybe if he didn't move, no one would notice. And I felt her loosen her grip, and I looked up at her, and she was looking down at her hand. And I heard her say under her breath, whose hand is this? Yes, class, it is my birthday.
and, and you've given me a party. I, I don't remember. I don't remember the last time I had a party here in school. Thank you. But class, I, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm not 50. I, I'm just 49. And she got the chalk and she wrote it backwards because she could. 49. And Teddy said, one, two, three. <laughs> Teddy Dunn, what are you doing standing on that desk? I don't know. Do you know your mother and father paid good money for that desk? You get down from there right now. She got off. He got off the desk. And then Miss Nottingham walked over and she sat down at her desk and she straightened herself out. She folded her hands on her desk and she said, Now, where's a piece of cake for the birthday girl? <laughs> and that's what I remember about Mrs. Nottingham. Thank you very much. That's a great, great audience. The story was called Happy Birthday, Mrs. Nottingham. And it was told for you by the wonderful Massachusetts storyteller, Bill Harley, who, through the stories and songs that he shares all over the country, has maintained pretty well his understanding of what it was like to be a kid. That's how we do it. You know, we keep track of the stories with a pocket full of remembered stories An old man or an old woman can answer when a young man or a young woman asks the question, what's it like to be you? And it goes both ways, of course. That's a question worth asking, and speaking the answer is worth just as much. In a moment, a little talk back with members of our Appleseed family, A.J. Mingurance and Dr. Heather Bigley. That's coming up. I'm Sam Payne. It was just our pleasure to spend a moment in the Appleseed Performance Studio with the wonderful storyteller and musician Bill Harley. Spent some time with Bill, who, for my money, uh, there's nobody like Bill in terms of channeling what it's like to be a kid. It was a real pleasure to listen to that, not only with our terrific studio audience, but also with the folks that I've got around the desk here for me for a little talk back. Uh, one of our assistant producers, A.J. Mingorance. A.J., it's great to have you with me. Hello, hello. And one of our producers, Heather Bigley as well. Heather, thanks for joining me around the desk. Hi. When you hear the story of Mrs. Nottingham, is there a person that comes to mind? Is there a Mrs. Nottingham? I'm Mrs. Nottingham, <laughs> largely speaking, right? What I love about Mrs. Nottingham is she's trying to get through the day on what might not be a great day for her, right? And the students don't seem to understand. They're so wanting to have a birthday party. Maybe it's for her. Maybe it's for them. Um and they don't yet understand about what birthdays might mean to a woman who's approaching 50, right? Sure. And so there she is just trying to get through the day, and then she makes the point at the end of the story, I'm actually only 49. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that is just, you know, that's middle age, right? I'm just trying to make it through. Uh, and there's this window to middle age that the story opens for all kinds of audiences. Yeah. So I love it. You know, that it it makes me think about um, my mom and the way that she handles her age. You know, she has never been the kind of woman to, like, hide her age. She says, you know, I love the fact that I'm, like, 47. I Mm. think that's awesome. It's it's proof that I have been here for 47 years, and that's (laughs) not easy, but I'm doing it, you know? And and I love that, and she always Mm. says that. You know, when I'm like 90 or whatever, I'm never going to lie about my age. That's going to be so cool. Can you imagine being 90? You know? And, um, yeah, and I think I just really appreciate that example that she set for me of, like, why not make it your own personal um, badge of honor? I remember once uh, it was my birthday and a work colleague, like, said, oh, so are you going to be 29? And yeah. I was like, I know you're trying to give me a compliment, but actually— uh, I like being 37. So yeah. 37 is just great right now. Thanks very much. <laughs> 
Well, the wonderful Bill Harley story, Happy Birthday, Mrs. Nottingham, does bring up for me an elementary school memory. It's actually today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. I remember walking down to Alpine Elementary School with my mom during the second to last week of the summer before sixth grade. That's when you could see who your teacher was going to be when school started. They posted on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, scotch taped to the inside of the glass doors of the school. And there were a bunch of kids and their folks already there when we got there. Some of them were cheering and some of them were hugging their moms, thrilled when they saw what class they'd be in. I hoped I would get Mr. Brown, the cool young teacher whose students learned to dance to disco music in P.E. Inside, I not only hoped but knew I'd be in that class. I could hear disco music in my head as I peered through the glass and ran my finger down the list. Patterson, Page, Taylor, Terry. I ran my finger over the list again. Patterson, Page, Taylor, Terry. No pain. There must be some mistake, I thought. I ran my finger over the list again, as if the touch of my finger and the fervor of my belief in disco music would will my name onto the page. I just wasn't there. Sixth grade was supposed to be the year I was on top for once in my life, king of the school. How could I be king of the school if I couldn't disco? Well, I stood there for a long time before I looked at the sheets of the other teachers. But I finally did. And there I was, on the list of Mr. McDaniel's students, right between Parkinson and Peterson. Payne. Sammy Payne. I sighed. Mr. McDaniel was an old farmer, the oldest guy and the oldest family in my old town. And... While Mr. Brown taught disco, Mr. McDaniel taught square dancing. Kids called him Pencil Neck because his old neck was skinny and long and maybe his round head looked like an eraser. I could see that, I guess, but I really thought he looked more like a lizard. Everybody knew he yelled at kids, and he was my sixth grade teacher. It was going to be a long year. When the year began... There was one consolation of being in Mr. McDaniel's class. The desks in his classroom were arranged in pairs, and I got to sit by Darren Dibb, my best friend. But just when I thought the year might be okay, Darren and I were split up for talking too much. We weren't yelled at, by the way, just split up. And Mindy Bradshaw and Heather Nielsen across the room were split up for talking too, in almost the same instant. And Mr. McDaniel rearranged us. He made Darren sit by Mindy Bradshaw, and he made me sit by Heather Nielsen. Well, Darren was super bummed that he had to sit next to Mindy Bradshaw, and I was super bummed that I didn't get to sit next to Mindy Bradshaw. It was going to be a long year. But Heather Nielsen, it turned out, was awesome. She was funny as anything and super smart, and she loved the polar bears I drew on the covers of my notebooks. Draw another one, she'd say. Draw one jumping into the water. Draw one in a dress. Who knew if Mindy Bradshaw even liked polar bears? And Mr. McDaniel, the old farmer, came to school one day on a noisy old tractor pulling an enormous flatbed trailer. And he told us we could pick a book from the library and then told us to climb onto the trailer. And on that trailer, he pulled us to his family's apple orchard where we had a -a read-a-thon for the rest of the day. We lay in the shade of the apple trees, read the books we'd chosen, and when we got munchy, we'd reach up and pick a fresh apple off the tree. And if I got sick of Darren Dib, I'd reach up and pull an apple off the tree and throw it at him, and he'd say, hey, and he'd throw an apple back. I mean, it was idyllic. I even kind of learned to like square dancing. I remember even walking by the gym one time when Mr. Brown's class was in there disco dancing. And they looked like idiots. At least I thought so. I didn't think much about sixth grade when I was there. It just happened. And we all painted the board covers of scrapbooks, and we hammered together boxes of wood to put insect collections in, and we made leather belts and wallets, and we learned about the rise of communism, and we ate apples and ran a mile and a half in under 12 minutes down to the creek and back. 
And Heather Nielsen and I laughed our heads off. We drew a million polar bears, and we were never split up the whole year. But years later, when I had grown up and lived far away, I visited my hometown with my own sixth grader. We went to church there on a Sunday. And there, standing at the door to the chapel, was an ancient, frail husk of a guy. My son and I stopped when we saw him. The old man looked a little like a lizard, a little like Mr. McDaniel. His lizardy head turned up to me, and his face broke into a wide grin. He held out his hands and walked toward us, smiling bigger with every step. His hand got to me first and grabbed mine in an unsteady handshake. I towered over him. He was so small. He pulled me closer and reached up to put his little arm around my big shoulders. And through an enormous smile and with shining eyes, he said my name, my old name, Sammy Payne. My son giggled. Sammy, he said. I hadn't gone by Sammy in years, since about sixth grade. And I said, son, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. This is Pencil Neck. I, I mean, Mr. McDaniel. Mr. McDaniel was my sixth grade teacher. The year I thought would be impossible to endure. The year that wound up being impossible to forget. Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the Appleseed spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love around the dinner table or around the living room. It's been a pleasure sharing uh, the desk here with Heather Bigley and A.J. Mingorance. Guys, it's great to have you with me. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Sam. We always hope that the stories we bring you here on the show will spark memories and thoughts for you, the sharing of which will help you and the people you love grow closer to one another. Do you have a memory of a thing you thought was going to be impossible to endure and then somehow you got right through it? Those stories can be worth sharing and remembering. They can help you face the future things that might seem at first to be impossible to endure. Those stories, remembered and spoken now, might come back to save you right when you need them. Coming up, a conversation with a teacher and a student, each of whom impacted the life of the other. I'm Sam Payne. I am so much enjoying our time together today. I loved Little Things, that song by Bill Harley, sung from one generation to another as a testament that the little things matter, even when you might be inclined to write off the things you think or feel because they or you are too little to count. And of course, we heard that great story about a third grade class and its teacher, Mrs. Nottingham. And it all brought to mind for me memories of my own sixth grade classroom, a year I thought would be unbearable and that instead wound up being unforgettable. And speaking of generations and of teachers and students, I want to tell you one more story. It begins when one of our assistant producers, her name is Naomi Campbell, invited a guy named Jeff Flynn into the studio to read a poem. It's the famous poem Invictus, written by William Ernest Henley long ago in 1875. Henley wrote the poem when he was just 26. He had tuberculosis, and his leg had been amputated at the knee. It was a tough situation, and still, Henley wrote this immortal poem about how each of us, no matter what our circumstances, is the captain of his or her own course, the master of his or her own fate. And we wanted a recording of that poem for a project we were working on. Here's Mr. Flynn's reading of just the last few words of that poem. It's pretty cool. It matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. 
I am the captain of my soul. Like I said, it's kind of a cool poem. And as I'm in the control room of the Appleseed Studio recording Mr. Flynn's reading of the poem, I hear something next to me. Another voice is reciting the poem along with Mr. Flynn. It's our assistant producer, Naomi Campbell. I wish I had a recording of that, but well, she was in the control room with me and not in front of the mic like Mr. Flynn. But I got to wondering, what made Naomi choose Mr. Flynn to come in and read this poem? And Naomi told me that she had chosen Mr. Flynn because he was her fourth grade teacher and had, get this, taught her the poem in fourth grade. That's how she knew he knew it. And I'm thinking, Naomi's fourth grade teacher, let's see what Mr. Flynn can tell us about Naomi's long ago fourth grade class. And he did. He shared with us the story of something that Naomi described like this. It's things like this that really start to shape who a person becomes and what kind of person they become. What was the thing that way back in fourth grade would shape what Naomi and her classmates would become? Well, Mr. Flynn begins to explain, and he talks about his very first year of teaching. He's a nervous new teacher, just getting used to it, just kind of finding his way through from day to day. And he's got this one student who keeps finishing her work early. And spoiler alert, it's Naomi. And she comes up to Mr. Flynn's desk, and she asks what she should do now that her work is done. And I thought, oh, now what? What do I do? And I had a couple of things, and because I like I love the poetry, um, I printed up a copy of, of it wasn't Invictus to begin it with. It was um, I Cannot Live in Vain. or no, Not in Vain. Not in Vain. Right. By Emily Dickinson. Good. Emily Dickinson. That was the very first poem, an easy mm-hmm. poem, a short poem. Mm-hmm. I printed it up, skipping lines, mm-hmm. and I handed it to her, and I said, well, write this in your best handwriting and, and learn this poem. Um, and, you know, she came back the next day. Okay, now what? After that, Mr. Flynn gives her another poem, Trees by Joyce Kilmer, the poem that begins with, I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree and ends with, poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. Well, she does that. She learns that poem. And then the thing kind of, well, it kind of takes off. I'd give her a more and more challenging poem. She would do the same thing. She'd write it in her handwriting, learn it, recite it to her parents, have them sign that she'd recited or presented it to them, memorized it, and I'd let her present it to the class. And the neat thing I discovered was without any pressure to the other students, they'd come to me and say, well, can I do that? Hmm. I said, well, okay. And I'd give them a copy. And so now I'd have four kids reciting it to the class and eight kids and then more kids wanted to. This thing turns into Mr. Flynn's poetry challenge. Kids who are done with their work come up to the teacher's desk to get a poem to learn. They got to write the poem in their best handwriting, memorize and recite the poem for their parents, and then recite the poem for the class. It turns into a poetry club, a poetry gang. And then comes my second favorite part of the whole story. There's an event coming up at school. But it got to a point where we had Dr. Seuss Day that year. And on Dr. Seuss Day, they bring in celebrities. Right. <laughs> and the celebrities were there were some local cheerleaders. Yeah. And our local, I probably shouldn't say his name, our local congressman. <laughs> and he came into our classroom and he read a Dr. Seuss story to my class. <laughs> and he never looked up or showed them kids the pictures because I, I figured, well, he hadn't really done much of this before. Right, yeah. And... And then he closes it, and, well, we, we thank him. And he's about to leave, and I said, well, whoa, whoa, before you leave, my class would like to recite something for you. Now, Mr. Flynn talks in this gentle, measured sort of way. You're hearing it now as he tells you this story. And this moment, getting ready to say what happened next, is the most exuberant he gets. It sounds like this. <laughs> this is was, this was so good. <laughs> That's what it sounds like when Mr. Flynn gets exuberant. What's he exuberant about? Well, here's what happened next. I had them stand up, and I think that you guys recited at that for that moment, crossing the bar. 
Crossing the Bar, that famous poem from Tennyson, written in 1889, about crossing from this life into the hereafter. The poem that ends with, For though from out our bourne of time and place the flood may bear me far, I hope to see my pilot face to face when I have crossed the bar. Mr. Flynn still remembers the look on the congressman's face, shocked awestruck, he says. He had read to us a Dr. Seuss book. Yeah. And then my fourth grader stood up and recited Crossing the Bar. No disrespect to Dr. Seuss books, for sure, I gotta say. But this is kind of cool, these fourth graders with all this poetry in their heads. That's a gift from a first-year fourth-grade schoolteacher that keeps coming back to Naomi, even now. I don't think a lot of us as fourth graders realized the accomplishment that we were we were doing, you know, these poems that a lot of people may not even recognize the name of, we had memorized word for word. We just thought it was cool that we had accomplished something. And I mean, we understood a lot of it, but as I got older and I went back to look at those poems, I realized how like deep and profound that must sound coming from a fourth grader to have that memorized. Now, remember I said the Dr. Seuss day with the congressman was my second favorite part of the story. Here's my favorite part. It's the part Now, 10 years later, Naomi Campbell is working for the Appleseed, and she invited Mr. Flynn to come and recite one of those old poems, Invictus, on the show. And Mr. Flynn hasn't ever been on the radio before, and he wants to do a good job, and he feels a little intimidated. And so in the end, Naomi's invitation for her old teacher to come into the studio does something interesting, something I love. It sends him back to study the story behind the old poem that he so loved. I thought, well, let me go a little deeper and do a little more research. And it became all the more and more impressive to think of someone in his early 20s writing this powerful poem to realize that he wrote that lying in bed with the prospect of losing another limb. Suddenly the poem had tremendous meaning and power. And, and the more I got researching, okay, here's the story. I love this story. That may not seem like a big deal, but I really love it. The notion that 10 years ago, the teacher gives the students the gift of a powerful experience with these old poems. And now, 10 years later, the student gives the teacher the same gift, an opportunity to enrich his own understanding of a poem he has long loved. And just for fun, let's give the last word to Naomi. I just remember it being something so unique that I had never done in any class, and I haven't done since anything like that in secondary school where that really impacted me that much or really meant that much. And so I just remember being this little fourth grader and all our friends, we just liked a challenge. And we just thought that was so cool that um, our teacher thought we could do this. I love that. We thought it was so cool that our teacher thought we could do this. That's a great benediction to this hour of the Appleseed, an hour in which we've been thinking about students and teachers, but even more than that, about the space between generations. What a great gift for one generation to give to another, to let them know that they think they can do it. Thanks for joining us today. Find us online at byuradio.org or download the BYU Radio app. And if you found us on the podcast, consider rating us and leaving us a review. It helps people find the show. I'm Sam Payne. Can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Seed.